John chapter 6, verse 25 to 40. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him... God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Father, we thank you that we can bow before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great privilege of being your children. But Lord, we confess that even for us, it is possible to draw near to you with our lips, but our hearts to be far from you. And Lord, therefore, we do pray again for the work of your Holy Spirit to bless each one of the people gathered here. And Lord, I know it's possible for a preacher to rely on his preparation and his words. And Lord, for that to be simply in the power of man. But Lord, we need the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, please help us, draw near to us. Bless each dear person here, young and old, in Jesus' name, amen. Dr. Martin Luther King uh, coined a phrase much beloved by the Afro-American church, which is, God makes a way out of no way. God makes a way out of no way. And that's not a bad definition of the grace of God. God's grace makes what is completely out of the question and unfeasible to come true. It is unfeasible, completely out of the question, for lost, sinful men and women to come near to God. But God makes it happen. We see just how lost people are. There in verse 36, if you look at that, these folk that we've read about, had the privilege of seeing and benefiting from uh, 
Jesus' miracle of multiplying the loaves. But they could only speak about the bread, you see. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Earlier in John's Gospel, John writes of Jesus being light that's come into the world. But the darkness has not understood it, says John chapter 1. There was God's own Son in clear sight, but there's not even a flicker, not even a glimmer of understanding who he is. That's how lost people are. But more than that, we love the darkness, says John. We love the darkness rather than the light. Left to ourselves, we are impossibly lost. We would never come to Christ. But grace explains, describes how God himself has acted sovereignly. I want to speak to you about sovereign grace this morning. Acted sovereignly, decisively in Christ on behalf of rebel, defiled, guilty humanity. God makes a way where there is no way. That's what's going on in the Bible. Grace shows the breathtaking sovereignty of God in our salvation. God will save and nothing and no one will stop him. And that's what our verse teaches there in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. What a great thing that is. This verse divides into two parts, very simply, very easily. There is the Father's giving and the Son's receiving. That's basically the two parts of the verse. So let's look at those two parts this morning. First of all, let's look at God the Father's grace in giving us. All that the Father gives me will come to me, says the Lord Jesus. God gives certain people to his son Jesus. The context here, as we've already noticed, is of people refusing to come to Christ deeply blind to who he is, despite the miraculous evidence. But Jesus is not discouraged by that. He says that though many people reject him, yet all the Father gives him will come to him. Now there are a couple of things to note here about the Father's giving. First, it originates in the distant parts of the past of eternity. If you look at verse 39, you'll see Jesus speaks there of those Jesus the Father has given, past tense. And this is the mysterious doctrine of election. Because left to ourselves, we would, none of us, ever choose God. Back before the beginning of time, God chose a vast number of people that he would save. A number that no man can number. 
elect of God. That's the past. But notice also in verse 37, our verse, that speaks of his giving in the present tense. God, what God planned in the past becomes reality in the present. <clears throat> How do I know if I'm one of those chosen by God this morning? The answer is simple. If you believe, you are chosen. Look at verse 40. Those who believe will have eternal life. One of those given by the Father to the Son. That's who you are if you believe this morning. So it's not just about you and your choices. Yes, those are true and real. But you have been caught up in something far bigger than that. God's choice. God's sovereign grace. Now, some people don't like this truth of election. Uh, they want to think that salvation is like a medicine which Christ makes available to all of us and it's up to each individual to decide whether or not to take the cure. But if the Bible is right in what it teaches about how lost we are, when Jesus stands right in front of somebody, they can't see who he is. And they love the darkness rather than the light. If we're that lost... If what the Bible teaches about how lost we are, that business of, well, here's the cure, just take it, that, that doesn't work, does it? Can't be like that. It will be like leaving, perhaps some of you are nurses here or something, or doctors, it will be like leaving an acutely ill patient who is blind and has dementia to medicate themselves. Yeah, there's the medicine. It's irresponsible, it's not going to happen, is it? He needs to be taken in hand by the doctor and <laughs> given the treatment. So in his grace, because we are so lost, God intervenes sovereignly. He gives us to Christ. Believer, God has taken hold of you. You didn't deserve it. You hated the light. You couldn't earn it. But God did it for you. In his grace, he has sovereignly determined to do you good, despite you fighting against him, so that you believe. Now, the next thing we must ask from the text is this. We need to notice that the Father gives us to Jesus. Why does he give us to Jesus? But there it is in verse 37. You see, all that the Father gives, gives me will come to me. Well, who's speaking? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does God give us to Jesus? Why not to some angel or someone else? And the answer is that the Father has given us to Christ because he alone can perform God's will for us, God's purpose for us, namely our salvation. 
Jesus spells it out in verses 38 to 40. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, the Father, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the purpose, and the Father gives us to the Son for that purpose, because the Son alone can bring that purpose to pass. Three things at least, but let's have three things to see here. First of all, he gives us to the Son because of the Son's incarnational humility. The Son becomes a human being among us, sinless, but one of us. The Son is that person of the Trinity through whom God reveals himself. He is the Word, and hence he is able to manifest himself into the world. The Father is such that no one can approach to him. But the Son comes in humility, takes on humanity for himself, and he does so willingly, knowing his Father's will, humbly serving the Father's purpose. So the Father gives us to his Son. But secondly, God gives us to his Son because of Christ's all-conquering power. You see, the things which hold us are immensely powerful. If you're not a Christian here today, you are held with infinite power almost, immense power in your state of blindness. Sin, you see, is strong, very strong, as we know if we try to break a bad habit. Satan is very strong. The curse of the broken law of God is immensely strong. The wrath we deserve for doing that is unendurable. But Christ, as the Son of God in the flesh, is stronger than them all. The power of his death eradicates all sin and guilt. Satan and his demons, as we know from the Gospels, tremble before him. And beg him not to cast them into the abyss before the time. Death itself cannot hold him. He is all-powerful. Dear Christian, you are in his loving hand this morning. There is no condition of soul, no extremity of sin from which Jesus cannot save us. He saves to the uttermost. That's why the Father gives us to him. This is grace, sovereign grace. And of course, thirdly, God gives us to his Son because Jesus, because of Jesus' unshakable faithfulness. 
Jesus is not someone who starts a work and then walks away from it. He, is not, he will not give up on us or back away from us or back away from what's required of him to save us. He gave proof of that, didn't he, Christian, in Gethsemane. Gripped as a human being by a fear which caused him to sweat great drops of blood as he foresaw the cross. Nevertheless, he stepped forward for us. He is faithful. Faithful. This is grace. This is grace. And of course we could say more about Christ's wisdom and his patience and his love and many other things. But you get the picture. It is because of the unsurpassable excellencies of who Jesus is that the Father gives us sinners into Jesus' hands. And the result of the Father giving us to his Son is that all the Father gives to me will come to me. That's the result. We will come. Yes, of course we make a decision. But it's all in God's plan. We will come. There is a work of God's providence that brings you to hear the gospel. (laughs) I'm reminded of an old illustration where a People often say, don't they, that you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. That's not true. A man said, that's that's not true. How can you make a horse? You put salt in their oats. They'll drink. Jesus put salt in our oats. He made us long. He brought us to that place where we thirsted for God and for salvation. There's a work of providence that brought you to hear the gospel. Remember Zacchaeus, that short man, he couldn't even see Jesus. But there's that tree, just the right place, and up he goes. He sees Jesus, and Jesus sees him, and there are such providences in our lives. Me, a non, from a non-Christian home where the emptiness of sin became clear. Perhaps you from a Christian home where you saw how good faith is and how different your mum and dad were from others. And that brought you, that brought you to the Saviour. And there's a work of the Spirit, of course. No one seeks God, says the Bible. But you found yourself seeking God. That salt was put in you and you thirsted for Christ. So God has shown his grace wonderfully to you. Who are you this morning, Christian? You're someone under the grace of God. You are the recipient, the target, if you like, of the undeserved grace of God. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint, yet I love thee and adore. Oh, for grace. to love thee more. Surely, surely, that's where we stand this morning. So there is the Father's grace in giving us
to his son. But then secondly in this verse, we see the son's grace in receiving us. The son's grace in receiving us. Look at the end of the verse. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. The word we need to focus on here is whoever. Here is a free offer and a promise to anyone who will come to him. He will not turn you away or cast you out. Let's highlight some examples. Let's think first of all about fearful sinners. Some of us know our sins and just how wretched we are, and we also know how beautiful and holy is Christ. And in the back of our mind, therefore, we have this fear that Jesus will say, whoever, but not you, not you. Whoever, but no. But that is an unfounded fear. Whoever, whoever you are this morning, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In Matthew chapter 9, we find the story, you remember, of the paralyzed man who is brought to Jesus by his friends on a stretcher and let down through the roof. You remember that? And Jesus' first words to the man are, take heart. Read it in Matthew's version. Take heart. And that seems to indicate that as his friends brought him along, he lost heart. Perhaps because, especially because of his sins. Jesus is healing, but he won't heal me. He'd lost heart. I've been such a rotter. But it's not like that. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, be of good cheer. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing that Jesus says. Be of good cheer. I look upon you as my own family, a son. And the thing you most are worried about, your sins, well, they're forgiven. And to prove he has the power to forgive, Jesus, of course, goes on to heal the man. Fearful sinner, Jesus doesn't turn us away. But then you say, but I'm a great sinner. I'm a great sinner. Big sins. I will not drive away. Yeah, but I'm an old sinner. Finished, no use to anybody. I will not drive away. I'm a hard-hearted cynic of a sinner. I will not drive away. I've sinned against the light. I've known these things and turned my back on them. I will not drive away. I've got sins no one else knows about. I will not drive away. And there are Christians who have messed up. Perhaps with gambling or pornography or something even turned away from Christ. 
A long time perhaps since you've even prayed someone here this morning. But he will not turn you away. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? He was one of the family. He wasn't an outsider. He was one of the family who sinned. He'd gone off, squandered his father's wealth, exposed the family to ridicule, probably in the neighborhood. Ha! Have you heard about his son? Surely there's no forgiveness for me. But there is forgiveness, isn't there? Here it is. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, get the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Let's have a feast for this son of mine was dead and is alive. Backslidden Christian, as you return, you will not be cast into hell. You will not be cast out. He will not drive you away. So return. He loves you. This is grace. And here's a word for perhaps weary, worn-out Christians. Christ will not turn you away. He will keep you, even though things have got so tough that you felt like walking out. See, look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The climax to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's great book, The Lord of the Rings, provides really a poignant illustration of the depths of the grace of God towards his people you remember charged with the destruction of the one ring the little hobbit Frodo must risk his life and take it into the land of the dark lord Sauron and cast it into the fires of Mount Doom where it was first forged and he's carrying this thing but the ring is unspeakably evil and like sin, still in us, has a corrupting influence, enticing whoever possesses it, like Gollum before him. Entices them to fall in love with it and so to come under its power. Maybe Christian here this morning, you are finding the pull of the world very, very strong. Yes, you're here in church. But the pull of the world is really, really hard. That's how it is, perhaps. And all through this arduous journey with his friend Sam Gamgee, Frodo has done his best to resist the power of the ring. However, 
Towards the end, he becomes increasingly tired and the pull of it is on him and he becomes irritable and erratic and he becomes fixated on the ring. He's giving in. He even begins to call it his precious, just as Gollum did before him. And in the novel's climactic scene, when Frodo reaches Mount Doom and prepares to destroy it, at that point his resistance finally crumbles. He changes his mind. I'm not going to do this. Completely backs out. Speaking in a proud voice, he claims the ring as his own. He won't destroy it. He will keep it. He finally cracks. And Tolkien wrote in a letter to a reader, Frodo did not endure to the end. He gave in. At that point, he was gone. But, sovereign grace. But, through the gracious intervention in the book of a divine providence, you remember Gollum suddenly appears, bites off, Frodo's finger with the ring and then overbalances, he falls into the, the, to his death in, in, in the mountain's fires below. That's what happens. That's where it reaches its climax, the desired conclusion, and Frodo is saved. Tired out in his heart, Frodo had completely lost it. Are you there this morning? Yet grace intervenes. Grace intervenes. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. What a picture of God's grace. As Christians, we are called to persevere, to be faithful to the end. But there are times when under, we're under so much pressure, like Frodo, we may lose it completely. But at the same time, the scripture, as the scripture calls us to be faithful, it tells us that God is faithful and assures us that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God makes a way where there is no way. Did you realize the grace of God was so deep, so powerful? You're on that gospel train and it's going to get you there. And God won't let you get off. He's taking you through. That's the sovereign grace of God. Dear friends, such grace requires a response. Oh, love that will not let me go, that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. Such grace requires a response. And that response is to give you all, not just turning up on Sunday, great to see you here, but to give you all to the Lord Jesus Christ.
great missionaries, David Livingstone, his great motto, something like this. No reservations, no regrets, no retreat. I'm all for God because he's all for me. No reservations. Oh, I'll do that for God, but not that. No reservations. No regrets. No retreat. Isaiah, that we read about earlier, saw something of this grace of God. And he hears the word of God, who shall I send? And Isaiah puts up his hand. Here am I. Send me. Me. Please. May there be such a response in your heart this morning to whatever God is calling you to. God bless this church. Amen.